0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Rebecca Hanel-Peters. She is a PhD student studying human behavior from an adaptationist perspective in the Evolutionary Psychology Lab at the University of Texas at Austin with Dr. David Buss, who's a former guest on the show, So in her master thesis, she sought to understand individual differences in rape myth acceptance. She is currently interested in sexual conflict and women's psychological adaptations against sexual exploitation. And today we're going to focus mostly on rape myth acceptance, but also talk a little bit perhaps about women's psychological adaptations against sexual exploitation. So... Rebecca, welcome to the show. It's a big pleasure to everyone.
1: Yeah, thank you. Very excited to be here.
0: So, um, what is rape myth acceptance then?
1: Yeah. Uh, so, rape myth acceptance has a myriad of different uh, definitions, but I think that the best, most succinct one is that they rape myths are false beliefs, statements, and stereotypes about rape that are known to persist and deny the severity of and justify the use of uh, men's sexual violence against women. Uh, So at least that's as much as the old literature goes and newer research has identified rape myths about male victims of sexual violence and then also expanding to incorporate intersections and identities such as gender, age, and uh, the LGBTQIA spectrum. So basically very, Succinctly, rape myth acceptance, then, is the endorsement of these false beliefs, statements, and stereotypes. Yeah. Uh,
0: and this includes both the act itself and the, big, the victims and the perpetrators, right?
1: Right, yeah. So, basically, any sort of statement or belief that will excuse the perpetrator and blame the victim, um, So, uh,
0: okay, so just to illustrate what we're talking about here, could you give us some common examples of rape myths that people tend to accept? And then we'll break them down and talk about why people accept them and who accepts them. But tell us about some of the most common ones then.
1: Right, so there's many culturally specific ones, but I'm sure that you've heard some form of statements such as he didn't mean to rape the victim. So like he was probably too drunk or sexually aroused and the victim may have asked for it. Um, so these kind of look like she's dressed in a certain way suggesting her sexual availability, um, like her dress was too short. Uh, and other rape myths tend to suggest that women lie when they're claimed uh, that they were raped. Uh, it's, things like she waited too long to report it so it must be a lie or she's seeking revenge against an alleged perpetrator. And then there's finally one other category of rape myths that include concern over what counts as rape. So these could be things that are like um, questioning legitimacy claims reliant on the victim's clear denial. So if she didn't say no clearly enough, then it must not have been rape. Or if she doesn't have any injuries, then she must have consented to at least something. Uh, Yeah, those are the four main categories.
0: So, and you're doing work on a scale that is called the Rape Excusing Attitudes and Language Scale. So, what is it and what is it for?
1: Yeah, so the Rape Excusing Attitudes and Language Scale, or I'm just gonna call it the Real Scale for short. Uh, so it's the real one, use this one, not the Irma. <laughs> uh, but basically it's a newly validated Rape Myth Acceptance Scale. We published it in Personality and Individual Differences. Uh, so this is published with my friend and colleague, Dr. Aaron Goetz. Uh, we created this scale to measure Rape Myth Acceptance because Rape myths tend to become outdated as we learn more about sexual violence, and the paper argues that uh, certain psychometric scales measuring rape myth acceptance should be, you know, updated periodically to reflect these more understood nuances over time. So the most commonly used psychometric assessment of rape myths is called the Illinois Rape Myth Acceptance Scale. Uh, I'll refer to this as IRMA, just because that's a Both of these are very long winded. Uh, So many of the problem with the IRMA is that 10 out of 22 of the items are arguably measuring knowledge about rape rather than actual acceptance of rape myths. Um, So this is an issue because we could be conflating people's understanding of what rape is with false statements and beliefs about rape. so, for instance, one, idea, one item on the IRMA that exemplifies this is that girls who are caught cheating on their boyfriends sometimes claim it was rape. So, when it, if you know the literature and you're reading about recanted reports on rape, uh, there's one study that, was, that looked at the recanted reports, so ones that are taken back because they were false. Uh, and between 1978 and 1987, They found that 56% of these uh, recanted rape reports provided an alibi to the complainants. So one reason for acquiring this alibi was the woman's fear of pregnancy from an affair partner. So there exists at least four published studies looking at falsified rape reports, and all of them find that there is a theme of providing an alibi for a woman who has cheated on her partner. Um, and while it's very rare to have false reports of rape, because only a estimated 23% of rapes are ever reported to the police, and only two to 10% of these uh, reports are meet the criteria for false reports, but it seems that while it's extremely unlikely for them to be false reports. Sometimes women who cheat on their boyfriends falsely report rape as an alibi. Um, So that statement is arguably demonstrably true. And to the best of our knowledge, um, the real scale that we recently published is a measure of rate myth acceptance that does not include any demonstrably true statements. It all focuses on rate myths. Um, and we found that the real scale predicts just as much variability in rate myth acceptance as the IRMA, but with greater internal validity.
0: Mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, ju- just for people to get a better understanding of. Uh, what the scale measures. I, I, I mean, what is the information that you can learn by applying this scale? I mean, what are you trying to get at here exactly?
1: Yeah. So, rate myth acceptance uh, is positively related to a lot of individual difference. So, uh, differences. So, things like. Uh, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but Mm -hmm. uh, one of the biggest predictors of this is men's likelihood to perpetrate sexual violence. So if we can measure, you know, rape myth acceptance, we can predict a lot of hostile attitudes towards women. We can identify maybe certain situations in which the law might not be, you know, doing its best to have juries who... Uh, may believe victims, uh, who may give them a fair trial. There's a lot of things that rape, myth, acceptance and understanding these things can be attributed to.
0: Mm -hmm. So, uh, and before we get into those individual differences, um, I would like to ask you about uh, the uh, self, uh, sorry, a reproductive self-interest model of morality and how it might work as a framework for uh, having a better understanding of where or of how moral judgments associated with moral behavior develop where they come from etc
1: yeah uh, that's a great question there are many 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 frameworks to understand morality especially sexual morality and the things that we deem as bad behavior things that we deem as good sexual behavior yeah. uh, this model the reproductive self-interest model of morality was originally posited by Kurzban, Van Dukes, and Whedon uh, in, I believe it was t- 2010. And they basically suggest that there exists all of these variation in attitudes towards things like abortion, prostitution, contraception, basically anything that's associated with promiscuity. Um, and typically it has been understood as Uh, one's political orientation and religiosity predicts all of these things, but we're not born with a specific, you know, political orientation. Uh, Political orientation varies across countries, and we're we're trying to understand uh, human psychology from an adaptationist framework where we should expect our, you know, psychology to be human universals, then we have to look at what what predicts these things, right? What predicts the political orientation or religiosity? And it seems to be that an individual's sexual strategy might be predicting these things. Uh, So the reproductive self-interest model of morality posits that individual differences in sexual strategies mediated by one's uh, religiosity and political orientation cause, uh, causally influences people's moral judgments towards social hot button issues like abortion, prostitution, contraception, and illicit drug use. Um, so of course these are all correlational studies examining the relationship between these things, but, uh, there's some evidence to suggest that if you control for sexual strategies, that is, if somebody is a short-term mater or a long-term mater, uh, you, you can, Basically, break the correlation between political orientation and all of these social hot button issues that have to do with promiscuity. Um, So, we applied that to predicting rape myth acceptance since it seems like rape myth acceptance tends to blur the lines between what is promiscuous, consensual sex and forced sex.
0: So in this case, and since you mentioned stuff like abortion, prostitution and contraception, uh, people who have uh a, um, i mean who in terms of their mating uh, act more long term, let's say, are the ones who tend to be against morally against stuff like abortion, prostitution, contraception, and those kinds of things, right?
1: Right, yeah. So the the model basically suggests that um, individuals will follow a strategy of coordinated condemnation. Whereas if you are, let's say I am a really good long-term mater, but I cannot do short-term mating. Um, I'm not good at it at all. And it would be detrimental to my ability to fulfill my strategy, consciously or not. Uh, to have a bunch of promiscuous individuals in my immediate area, because that would provide my spouse an easier like, way to uh, defect on our relationship. So if I sit here and I consistently say promiscuity is bad, anything associated with promiscuity is bad and costly, and I'm going to judge you negatively if you do all of these things and make it really costly for you to do these things, and if everybody agrees on that, then that behavior will be less likely in the environment Hmm. and therefore long-term strategies will be easier. And this applies to a short-term strategy as well. If you're thinking, well, I'm really good at short-term strategies. Uh, I wanna make it easier for me to do all of these things then maybe you would moralize as good all of the things with uh, associated with promiscuity so uh, access to contraceptives you would moralize as good and i mean there's some conflations in this too because obviously we're a lot more socially liberal than we used to be at least in the united states um so we have the control for that as well but there seems to be some good evidence suggesting that the sexual strategies is what's predicting whether you moralize promiscuity as good or bad
0: Yeah, it's like if I have a particular sexual preference or if I am more long-term or short-term oriented, it's easier for me to uh, really put those preferences into practice if... Most people or ideally everyone around me agrees on that, right? I mean, it's easier for me to be monogamous if everyone thinks they should enforce monogamy or it's easier for me to be polyamorous if everyone around me thinks that it's okay to uh, be with um, different people, right?
1: Right. Yeah, right
0: yeah so uh okay and with that in mind what predicts then rate uh, rape myth acceptance i mean are there particular individual differences related to yeah. long-term or short-term mating strategies or other stuff for example
1: yeah um there are many things that predict rape myth acceptance but uh, at least as far as a 37 study massive meta-analysis of these individual differences that was done by Suarez and Gadiah. I think it's Gadiah. I can't remember how to pronounce it. Anyways, that was published in 2010 and the strongest predictors of rape myth acceptance were attitudes towards women. So uh, men who held more misogynistic or hostile attitudes towards women were more likely to accept high rates of rape myths. Try saying that 10 times fast. Um, Higher rates of rape myths. Yes, it's a lot. Uh, And then Racism, uh, heterosexism, classism, and ageism pre- positively predict these things. Uh, previous sexual violence perpetration, as I had mentioned. Uh, so whether that be sexual harassment or other forms of forced sex, team, if you have a history with this, it seems that you accept higher rates of rape myths, uh, which if the function is to you know, mitigate the blame for yourself, then that makes sense. Uh, political conservatism seems to predict the a greater rate myth acceptance, and neg- negative attitudes towards promiscuity also predicts these things. Um, a person's sex, so whether or not they're male or female, also predicts rate myth acceptance.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, so I mean, of course, I would imagine that there would also be a cultural factor playing a role here, right, because I mean, there are stuff like these myths that certainly get um, transmitted uh, culturally as well. But uh, since you're coming at things from an adaptationist perspective, you're, you're trying to understand uh, what, in terms of people's, in this case, sexual behavior might predict this. And of course, some of where also this culture stems from might have at least some, some form of evolutionary or biological basis, right?
1: Right, and I think too, uh, yes, understanding like the psychology that supports the cultural differences uh, to predict these things. So for instance, areas in which sexual violence may not be as like heavily negatively condemned, uh, you may expect to see more rape myths. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think I haven't read a lot of the literature having to do with cross-cultural studies on these things. And unfortunately, my master's thesis really only looked at US participants. But uh, I would expect that rate myth acceptance is a thing that happens in most countries.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, but, but that's an important point. So uh, there's the caveat that uh, I don't know, most of this research has been done in the US. Is that it?
1: Yeah, yeah, and right now I am working with a woman in Japan to uh, translate and validate the rate myth, the real scale uh, mm-hmm. to uh, Japanese individuals. And she told me that there has not been any sort of studies on rate myth acceptance over in Japan. Uh, so we're, we're going to soon have the first data on that. I'm very excited to look at how this scale translated and did well, and if it did well or not. So.
0: Mm-hmm. It'll but be exciting uh, yeah sure but but j- just one uh, another question before I get into the next one so uh does accepting uh rape myths uh predisposes you to being more accepting of rape itself
1: um so that's a really good question, and I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I want to say yes <laughs> uh. But it's also important to understand how the scales are measured. They're typically on either a five point or seven point scale where it goes from strongly disagree to strongly agree. And much of the scores are in the strongly disagree areas. So it seems like people who slightly disagree or either agree, like, they just don't disagree with these things are the ones who are accepting these rape myths, right? So it's not like a lot of people are very strongly agreeing with these uh, with these statements, but it could be that there are internal biases that make individuals more likely to question a claim of rape, and that seems to be associated with accepting these false beliefs and stereotypes. Um, So I would be hesitant to say that people who are higher on the rape myth acceptance are more likely to justify rape or not condemn it. They're just less like, or they're just more likely than the alternative, which is not at all, right? So um, I'm not sure about the data looking at individuals who purely 100% don't believe victims when it happens. But if those individuals exist, then they probably accept these false beliefs and stereotypes.
0: Yeah, and uh, I mean, I guess we have to keep in mind that even in more, let's say, conservative societies, I I mean, I I guess that... A- 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 except for the rapists themselves, everyone morally condemns rape. I mean, they they might accept yes. certain excuses, certain myths, but that's not at all the same as saying, oh, rape is okay. Right?
1: Yes. And a uh, fun fact, I have new data that's not published that I just started looking at from 20 different countries, and all of them condemned rape. It was all at floor, so... Uh, no variation in that so it's it's good yeah. a lot of these countries condemn this act
0: so <laughs> yeah that's uh, good to know good to know that's reassuring so uh <laughs> yeah. and are, are there also because you come at things from an evolutionary perspective are there any sex differences in rape myth acceptance oh,
1: yes uh there are sex differences in rape myth acceptance Uh, very large sex differences, and it's one of the most replicable findings in the literature on rape myth acceptance. So, men tend to accept statistically greater amounts of rape myths compared to women. Uh, In our preprint on the reproductive self-interest model of morality, we found that sexual strategies predicted men's rape myth acceptance, but not women's. and so it's possible that this sex difference may stem from the costs of rape that unique that is uniquely experienced by women and not necessarily men. Uh, so things like unwanted or unplanned pregnancies, uh, the circumvention of a woman's mate choice, uh, sexual you know damage to her sexual reputation or social reputation, and uh, a lot of these data might have been discussed when you talk to Carrie Getz, uh, but that's. Carrie Gets and uh, a lot of the old older members of the bus lab have looked at the costs of rape. I think it's Karen Paraloo who's on that main paper.
0: Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, we've already covered all of that. Then what are some of the most common female psychological adaptations against rape or sexual exploitation more generally?
1: Yeah, this is my favorite subject. Uh, so there's several... Uh, I think to best answer this question, I wanna zoom out just a little bit. Uh, So the context in which the protective psychology is induced is temporally important. Mm -hmm. So targeted victims may experience different costs depending upon if they're avoiding a sexual assault, if they're uh, being attacked at the moment or after a completed attack. So understanding these different defenses at through this tripartite model uh, that Dr. David Buss, my advisor, uh, laid out in his newest book in chapter eight, When Men Behave Badly. Uh, that's how we're looking at things right now. So as I mentioned before an attack, during attack, and after an attack. Uh, and I'm not sure how in depth you would like me to go. So I'm just gonna briefly state the defenses that are organized in this model. Mm-hmm. And we can circle back around if you want. Yep. Uh, but be- before an attack, women's best defense is to simply avoid victimization. And these, the psychological adaptations that can aid in this are uh, women's fear of rape and women's use of social allies as bodyguards. And the bodyguard hypothesis is my main area of research at the moment. Um, but should an attack be like imminent, and uh, she has the opportunity to do one of three things. She may flee, she may fight or she may freeze. And these are very common categorizations, so I'm gonna expand on them just a little bit. Fleeing may look like running away from a perpetrator situation and hiding um, until they feel they have avoided the situation or the attack. Women may also alert their bodyguards or their social allies through alarm calling, which is simply yelling or screaming for help. Uh, They may use physical defenses, such as fighting back, using novel, uh, evolutionarily novel weapons, such as pepper spray. But an extremely misunderstood defense is tonic immobility. And this is what happens when women perceive that threat of force and physical damage is imminent and they cannot get away. So tonic immobility is involuntary full body paralysis that's experienced by animals, um, also happens in humans. So it's roughly 40% of all rape victims experience tonic immobility. It's correlated with higher self-blame, more victim shaming and higher rates of post-traumatic stress disorder following rape victimization. And it's extremely important to understand that this this is not a voluntary thing, it's involuntary and it vocalizes even, or sorry, it paralyzes even the vocal cords of the victim. So if we, if this is like one thing that people take away from this, is that I want people to know that uh, requiring evidence from the victim that they physically fought back to legitimate her like experience, that's not ex- acceptable. A large number of women are temporarily involuntarily paralyzed. She cannot scream, she cannot fight back. And it also, uh, but but it's, it's functional, right? Tonic immobility likely reduces the likelihood of physical damage during an assault. And so I think this is one of the most misunderstood areas and actually re- relates back to the rape myth acceptance. If women are paralyzed, she can't fight back and people might think, well, she didn't fight back, she didn't have any bruises, so therefore it's not a legitimate rape. Um gonna put a pin in that. <laughs> so then finally, the third temporal states includes after the attack. So women who have experienced completed rape may protect themselves against costs associated with, you know, with affecting her sexual reputation or her social reputation damage to her, uh, her uh, kin, etc. Uh, They may do this by refuging. So simply hiding at home and not going out, not telling anybody about anything. They may destroy the evidence by either washing themselves or douching, which is also told by the medical community that you should not do that uh, because it makes it harder to get evidence of the effect or of of the attack. And they may, I mentioned, they may hide information from peers and loved ones, even romantic partners, if it was a perpetrator outside of the romantic partner. And finally, they may develop post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. And many clinicians think about PTSD as a maladaptive disorder but it might be an adaptation to motivate avoidance of an extremely reproductively costly situation, such as the possible uh, loss of life or damage to reproductive resources. So we're kind of looking at PTSD, or at least we will be looking at PTSD and trying to identify if it's uh, a disorder or if it's an adaptation. So those are some of the behaviors and the suite of mechanisms that women are hypothesized to have.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, about all of that, I just want to say that I'm not sure if you agree or not, you tell me, but I mean, when it comes to the um, tonic immobility, I guess that you mentioned, I mean, even if someone can still voluntarily move, uh, I mean, uh, uh, just uh, doubting someone because she didn't try to fight back against the perpetrator. I mean, sometimes people are just so scared that they don't mm-hmm. do anything, or they think that it's better not to do anything because uh, it might be worse uh, if they try to fight back or something like that. So uh, I mean, right. uh, come on, right?
1: Right. Yeah. So uh, one I didn't mention is acquiescing. Uh, so that's simply just not fighting back because mm-hmm. they perceive that they it would get worse. Yeah. Um And I, th- one of so I'm looking at uh, a bunch of these different protective behaviors that I have not fully written up the data yet, but uh, it seems to be that women acquiesce to uh, perpetrators who they know. So a lot of the literature looks at defenses against sexual violence as perpetrated from a stranger, somebody you don't know, but those are the least likely perpetrators. It's typically acquaintances, friends, or romantic partners, and each of these perpetrators have different costs associated with them. Uh, So especially if it's a romantic partner, and you are cut off from a lot of your friends and families, and you're in a, you know, domestic violence situation, many women actively will just acquiesce into it because they know if they refuse, it will get very bad, and they have to live with this individual. So yes, we shouldn't blame victims, even if they don't, fight back or they're not, you know, involuntarily paralyzed.
0: Yeah. And that's the other thing. I mean, and that gets perhaps into other rape myths, like for example, going out on the street at night with some more revealing clothes, let's say being, and because of that, you're more at risk in certain situations. I mean, blaming the victim for that You also have to take into account or remember that most rapes occur uh, between acquaintances, between family members, between lovers, so at home, basically right
1: yeah, yeah, unfortunately, so yes
0: yeah so uh, okay, so uh, I would like to ask you about one more topic before we go, because you 've also written about this, so we have evolutionary psychology and also evolutionary anthropology, so. How do you look at the relationship between them? Because, uh, I mean, I've already asked this question to other people on the show, in fact, and some people told me that they don't think they are really that different, and some even told me that perhaps they shouldn't be thought of as two different disciplines but what is your opinion about that i mean and when it comes to perhaps some of the differences that might be there might be between them how do you think we can bridge the, that gap let's say
1: yeah so i am of that same i'm so of that same coalition uh i don't think they should be two different things um so i'm not an expert on this topic by any means uh, as I am a I am a second year PhD student. Uh, however, I do I have written about like the core differences between these two fields, and really they're complementary. Uh, so as far as evolutionary anthropology goes, according to Alden Smith, um, so this is a subset the assumptions of a subset of evolutionary anthropology called human behavioral ecology. Uh, So they have like four main assumptions, and that would be ecological selectionism, which is the influence of the environment and uh, environmental features on the expression of behaviors of interest. Uh, The second one is the piecemeal analytic approach, which assumes that there's benefits gained by studying individual factors associated with specific socio ecological phenomenon. So that's basically just studying certain aspects of a phenomenon in isolation and piecing the data together step by step. That's all science, right? Especially psychology, especially in action. We can't do everything or manipulate everything. So we have to put it together in a piecemeal fashion. Uh, Then there's the third assumption, which is the conditional behavioral strategies. And that's essentially alluding to decision rules uh in our you know cognitive architecture so from my understanding anthropologists typically assume that the behavioral variation documented across environments is an adaptive phenotypic response implemented by evolved mechanisms containing conditional decision rules for example um i'm not sure if you've spoken to brooke uh, shelza but she published a paper in 2020 that looked at 11 small-scale societies And she found that men's expression of sexual jealousy was systematically associated to the degree in which men contribute to family substance. So, or subsistence. So the more men are um, investing in offspring, the more sexual jealousy they express. Uh, And then the last one is basically just the phenotypic gambit, which this is still something I don't 100% understand, but a simplified version states that the selection uh, that selection favors traits with high fitness payoff. So regardless of the me- method of inheritance, this can be dual selection theory, so uh, or dual inheritance theory. So both uh, your genetics and the environment around you. It could be um, it, uh, 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 cultural. You know inheritance Mm -hmm. etc but uh those are the main assumptions of of one subset of evolutionary anthropology whereas evolutionary psychology's key assumptions resemble this a lot um so they have they they basically are highlighting more recurrent features of the environment uh that has shaped our cognitive architecture, rather than looking at the environment in the moment. And that's kind of one of the main key differences between Evo Anthro and Evo Psych. Um, But the key assumptions of Evo Psychology has to do with modularity, modularity, historicity, uh, adaptive specificity, and environmental novelty. So just very quickly, the modularity and historicity uh, suggests that species typical behavior is guided by specialized psychological mechanisms that are shaped by, uh, our natural, you know, natural selection to manage specified tasks. So, uh, I'm sure you're very familiar with that and the audience probably is too. Uh, and then
0: Uh, if not, by by the way, if not, they can go and watch my interview with David, Zebski and Lida Kosmidis, for example, so.
1: Yes, perfect. Thank you. Um, So essentially, I think what's happening here is that the two fields are mostly characterized by differences of methodology and also um, how the, the different level of analysis. Uh, so, in many subdisciplines of evolutionary anthropology, the focus of studies basically on the manifest behavioral variants of these mechanisms, whereas evolutionary psychology is typically examining the design features that lead to the behavioral variants. Uh, so, this would mean that we are uniquely poised to, you know, study our psychology together. Um, and It leads to many, many areas of collaboration. Uh, I began thinking about this and the potential for interdisciplinary collaborations between uh, these two disciplines when I took a graduate course uh, on evolutionary anthropology taught by John Patton who recently passed away. Um, I was very fortunate to be a student of his and Elizabeth Pillsworth and many other anthropologists that were involved in the Center for the Study of Human Nature at Cal State Fullerton. Um, So, their training, combined with my training by Dr. Aaron Goetz, Aaron Lukaszewski, Carrie Goetz, uh, and Carrie Goetz, uh, all prepared me well for my current position here at UT Austin with David, and I owe them a world of gratitude, and I continue to collaborate with my anthropologist friends, so that's that's what I have to say about that topic.
0: (laughs) Great, so, uh, and where can people find you and your work on the internet?
1: Yeah, uh so my Twitter handle is random mutations. Uh and then I also have my website at handle so it's H A H N E L P E E T E R S dot com. Thanks, mom, for that spelling. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah. So I'm I'm typically available through email, which you can find on both my Twitter and my website.
0: Yeah, great. So thank you so much again for taking the time to come on the show. It's been fun to talk to you.
1: Yeah, you too. Thank you for having me.
0: Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please consider... Supporting me on Patreon or Paypal, you will find links to it in the description box of this interview. And also, please share the interview, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Nlights learning and development done differently. Check their website at nlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and Paypal supporters. Perorga Larson, Jerry Muller, Ernst Frederick Sunda, Bernardo Seixas, Olaf Alec, Jonathan Visser, Adam Castle, Matthew Whitting, Bernardo, Wolf, Tim Hollis, Henrik Alenius, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, Robert Windega, Rui Nassio, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Simon Columbus, Phil Cavanaugh, Michael Stormir, Samuel Andreev, Francis Ford, Tiago Nunes, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cousin, Hal Herzog, Nun Machado, Jonathan Leibrandt, João Linhar, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, João Eira, Tom Hamel, Sardis France, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Des Araújo, Romain Roach, Diego Londonio Correa, Yannick Punter, Adana Ruzmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pablo Ostazewski, Nélek Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, Saima Fzal, Adrian Yegey, Nick Golden, Paul Tolentino, João Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pans Cortes, Ursula Litska, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sonny Smith, John Wiseman, Martin Eichland, Dr. Bird, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Mal Maria, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Cloaki, Georgius Theofen, Chris Williamson, Peter Wolosin, David Williams, Rooftowell, Diogo Costa, Anton Eriksson, Charles Murray, Alex Shaw, Amari Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Pedro Bonilla, Ziegler, Bangalore Atheists, Larry D. Lee Jr., Old Herringbone, Sterry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Grassis, Tom Roth, DR, PMD, Igor Ren, Jeff McMahon, Jake Zul, Barnabas Radix, Mark Campbell, Richard Bowen, Thomas Dobner, Luke Nissen and Chris Story. A special thanks to my producers Isa Webb, Jim Frank, Luke Stafiniak, Tom Vanagdam, Bernard Igni, Curtis Dixon, Benedict Muller, Vegagidi, Thomas Trumple, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Carlo Montenegro, Robert Lewis, and Al Nick and to my executive producers Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.